I went into the garden on this dark and lonely night when my knees hit the ground I prayed not my will not my will not my will but yours be done not my will not my will not my will but yours be done not my will not my will not my will but yours be done not my will not my will my will but yours be done I'm coming to you I'm coming to you I'm coming to you to say that I surrender I'm coming to you I'm coming to you
bow before you this morning to say that we surrender, not our will, but yours be done, Lord Jesus. We just, we just acknowledge, Lord, that you are the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and there is no God like you. You are on your throne, and you are in control. And we just thank you, Lord, for this morning. We thank you that we're able to gather while not together in one physical space. We're able to connect, um, Lord, because we are the church wherever we are. And so we just thank you for the opportunity to connect this morning via Zoom, where we pray that you would be honored and glorified by our service this morning, our service for you. I pray, Lord, for our hearts to be open during this time, Lord, may we be especially in tune with what it is that your spirit is saying to us. And I thank you for Conrad and for the preparation that he um, put into the message and listening and praying and meditating on your word, Lord. I pray that your word would come through Conrad, your servant, um, clearly and boldly and courageously, Lord. And so I just pray for um, your strength to come upon him, Lord, that I keep, pray that he would keep his eyes fixed and focused on you, that, Lord, that you would give him strength in his voice and a boldness, Lord, upon him, that he would speak your word to us. I pray for your protection to be around him, both now as he um, delivers your word, Lord, and in the week to come. We just thank you, Lord. We thank you for this time, and we thank you for Conrad and his obedience in delivering your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart always be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer, amen. Good morning, and I greet you in Jesus' name. And I want to especially thank the tech team who has helped put all of this together this week. I uh, want to recognize Landon Wenger, who will be working with us for the next three weeks to help us, next three months, to help us uh, improve and strengthen our online presence during this time and into the future. I also want to thank Kate, our Minister of Worship, for leading us this morning. That song you heard, you may not have heard before for good reason, Kate composed that song this week out of this um, challenging time as, as we all face. So thank you, Kate, for that this morning. I also want, wish that we had the opportunity this morning to check in with each of you. I've been doing that with my students online um, as I Zoom with them this week, just checking in with each of them to see how they're doing. And uh, although we can't do that this morning with you, Heidi has created opportunities throughout the week, uh, twice each week, for you to check in if you're feeling a need for support and for care. Um, that's a group opportunity, and so just uh, feel free to do that as she sends those links out to you. This is Palm Sunday. It's a holy Sunday. It's the beginning of Holy Week for us. The message we're going to hear this morning, the message that I heard as I listened to God this week, was not so much the Palm Sunday message, but really the message of suffering and death that our Lord experienced. And I think this week, if ever, in any Holy Week, we feel forced to deal with the reality of suffering and death because of the crisis that we're experiencing. A crisis then that when it does end has an unknown ending, a crisis that will certainly leave us with a different reality than the one we had just four weeks ago. We have medical staff in our congregation, but also throughout the country, who will be left with experiences of trauma. Others may have experienced broken relationships that will never be quite the same 
during this time. We'll have grief at some of the events that we missed, like the rites of passage of commencement and weddings and even memorial services. Job loss for some and lack of income. Death of loved ones that occurred during this time. Illness, loss of health insurance, poverty, and a lot more. It's important to stay with this grief and darkness that we are in, at least for a while, as Heidi shared this week in her third self-care essay that she sent out. If we're going to deal with the crisis that we're in in order to lead to transformation for us and for others, we have to feel the losses. We have to live within those losses. Only then can life emerge for us from the death and resurrection that we are experiencing, from the death to the resurrection that we're experiencing. Our story this morning begins with another group of people who were suffering crisis. And it begins in Numbers 21, 4 to 9. And so if you have your Bible, uh, you can turn to Numbers 21, chapter 21, verses 4 to 9. If you don't, I'm going to read it for you this morning. This may be a familiar story to you, or it may be one you've forgotten or not heard before. Numbers 21, 4 to 9. This is a story of the people of God who were still on the west side of the Jordan River. And they traveled from Mount Hor along the route to the Red Sea to go around Edom. But the people grew impatient on the way. They spoke against God and against Moses and said, Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the desert? There is no bread here. There is no water here. And we detest this miserable food. Then the Lord sent venomous snakes among them, and they bit the people, and many Israelites died. The people came to Moses and said, We sinned when we spoke against the Lord and against you. Pray that the Lord will take the snakes away from us. So Moses prayed for the people. While God's people were still on the west side of Jordan, wandering in the wilderness, waiting for the older generation, the unbelieving generation, to pass away so that they could cross into the promised land, they began to complain vehemently to Moses. Moses, why did you lead us out, into this, out of slavery into this mess? For this miserable manna that we have to gather every day and these scrawny quail that have hardly any meat on them. We're so sick of this stuff, we are nigh to starving. And besides, there is no bread or water. Suddenly, the unbelieving generation had also become the ungrateful generation. God's response to the complaining was prompt. He released poisonous snakes into the settlement so that many began to be bitten and to die. Predictably, as we so often do, the people came to Moses to repent of their sins against God and Moses and to plead for the snakes to be removed. God's answer to this was strange, to say the least. God said to Moses, create a snake, a bronze snake, a bronze serpent, and put it on the top of a pole. And for those who look at it, they will live. And so this is precisely what Moses did. He created a bronze snake, put it on a pole, and those who looked at it were indeed healed. Now we move forward several thousand years to the Gospel of John, where Jesus, in chapter 314, stated this, Just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. I don't know about you, but this comparison of Jesus himself to a serpent doesn't exactly fit what we tend to believe about this Holy Week story. Jesus, our Savior, yes. Jesus, the Lamb that was slain, yes. Jesus, our sacrifice, yes. Jesus, whom Pilate declared to be King of the Jews, yes. 
Jesus, whom the centurion would call the Son of God, yes. But Jesus, the serpent? Jesus, the snake? Isn't it that exactly what the Pharisees had said all along? That this man was nothing more than a child of Satan who had first appeared as a snake in the Garden of Eden. This must have been a puzzle to God's people in the wilderness too. This dragging themselves half dead to a pole with a bronze serpent at the top of it in order to find healing. These people who were so well versed in the punishment of death that their forefathers had faced when they worshipped the golden calf. These people who knew the commandments that thou shalt have no other graven images before that thou shalt have no graven images before me and you shall have no other gods before me. And to top it all off, healing came to them by laying their eyes on a bronze serpent in any other context that would have meant certain death for them. Yes, that serpent, that bronze serpent, brought healing to them. And yet, this was indeed God's commandment. And it is, to Je- and it is Jesus Christ himself who in John 3 One verse before, the familiar one, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Two verses before that, Jesus compares himself with that bronze snake. Just as the snake was lifted up and brought healing and life, so the Son of Man had to be lifted up to bring healing and life. How can this be? What is it about this serpent-snake thing here in the gospel story? What can it mean? What are we to make of this? Fortunately, the scripture in other places offers us some direction. I'm going to read from Psalm 58, 9 to 11. This is the psalm that's two chapters after the psalm of the week that we read this week, Psalm 56. And I'll send out a psalm of the week this week along with some meditations each day from Isaiah 53 that we'll look at in a few moments. Psalm 58, 9 to 11. Before your pots can feel the heat of the thorns, whether they be green or dry, the wicked will be swept away. The righteous will be glad when they are avenged, when they bathe their feet in the blood of the wicked. Then men will say, surely the righteous still are rewarded. Surely there is a God who judges the earth. This is a psalm that calls upon God to destroy the wicked and to bring down vengeance upon them. But Dietrich Bonhoeffer, suffering the rages of Hitler's Third Reich, argued that the only one who could pray this prayer really was Jesus Christ himself. The only one who could pray this judgmental prayer against the wicked was Jesus, not we who were followers of Jesus. But Jesus has the right to pray this prayer because he became, in verse 10, the wicked one, as it were, in whose blood the righteous bathe their feet. In other words, the blood of the wicked in verse 10 is none other than that of Jesus Christ himself, who on the cross bled for our sins and the sins of the entire world. In other words, once again, Christ became the wicked on our behalf, and as his blood flowed out, simultaneously said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. Do you see how amazing this is? That Jesus, who became the serpent, as it were, for us, who took upon himself the wickedness, the darkness, the evil, the sin of all humanity, for all time, also in that single moment, was the one who could forgive our sins and our brokenness and our darkness and our crookedness and our deception and to remove from us death itself. Who became for us the cure to all that was wrong with us. The one who simultaneously forgave sin and became sin. 
the one who became accursed and then released us from the curse, the one who experienced death and then took away the sting of death for us, the one who became the wicked in order to forgive our own wickedness, the one who reflected the bronze serpent in the wilderness so that in doing so he could overcome the power of that great serpent who had first brought sin and darkness and death into the world. If you are on Zoom, could you please turn down your audio? Thank you. Paul echoes this mystery in Galatians 3.13 where he says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hung on a pole. And in 2 Corinthians 5.17, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Christ became sin and Christ was cursed so that you and I could be set free. If someone told us tomorrow that there was suddenly a vaccine, if President Trump went on to the coronavirus task force and announced that there was suddenly a vaccine immediately available to all of us, but we simply had to pay something for it, I think we'd all go out in the same day and find that vaccine. But folks, the reality is that the sting of death and the virus of sin is so much more deadly than the coronavirus, ultimately. And the good news is that the cure for our darkness and confusion and brokenness and isolation and crookedness has already been taken care of by God, by Christ on the cross. I'd like to read from Isaiah 53, and as I said this week, I'll send out a brief meditation each week with a couple of verses from Isaiah 53. But I'd like to read from verses 1 through 6. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain, like one from whom people hide their faces. He was despised and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The prophet Isaiah describes in this passage a Christ who was likely to be missed by many as the Messiah, because he just didn't look like the Messiah. He wasn't attractive, Isaiah says, to look at. He didn't look like many of the pictures and paintings and drawings we have of Jesus. He didn't look like a king or a celebrity. There was nothing desirable, Isaiah says, about his appearance. And on top of that, he was hated and rejected. He suffered and knew pain. No one had much good to say about him. And yet, Isaiah isn't finished with the story. It was exactly this one this Christ, this Messiah, who portrayed the ugliness and plainness and then took up our pain, bore our suffering, and was pierced for our failures, was crushed for our crookedness and our deceit. And Isaiah says the punishment that brought us peace was on him. And it was by his wounds that we are healed. Do you hear the same themes that we've been working with this morning? That Christ wasn't exactly who anyone expected him to be nor was he much like I think we imagine and wish he had been. I wonder how many of us 
with our focus on getting things right, on looking right, on doing right, on being right, would have actually felt comfortable with this Messiah. This one who was so despised, this one who was held in low esteem, this one who was not popular with the righteous people of his day. We love to applaud ourselves for being righteous and good and having it together, but we are exactly the kind of people that Jesus refused to hang out with. Instead, he spent his time with people just like himself. People who were rejected, people who were despised, people who were held in low esteem, people who were, in the eyes of many, wicked, as he himself would become for us, people who, in so many eyes of others, were sinners, as he would become for us. Jesus hung out with these folks both because they saw themselves in him and he saw himself in them. You see, folks, this morning, the way of the cross is for those who recognize that they are broken. It's for those who recognize their ugliness, for those who recognize their crookedness, for those who recognize that they don't have it together, for those who are grieving so many losses right now, for those who aren't afraid to acknowledge that they are afraid, and for those who know they can't save themselves. It is with these that Jesus identified and identifies still. I want to clarify something that I think many of us have often gotten wrong in our theology. Jesus did not come to die in order to make us good. I want to say that again. Jesus did not come to die in order to make us good. Because the Father never saw us as bad in the first place, nor does he. Any sense that we are bad has come from the messages of others around us and from sin itself. It's the lie of Satan himself that we are somehow bad. No, when God created us, he said we are good. Jesus didn't come because we were bad. We are not bad, no matter what other messages you have heard. No, Jesus came to rid us of the ultimate coronavirus, as it were, of that virus of crookedness and self-centeredness and self-deception that connects itself to all of us in this world. The cross of Christ delivers us from the virus of sin that kills us and destroys us ultimately. But he did not come to make us good. We are good because we have his imprint upon us. We are made, all of us, in his image. We don't suddenly become good when we give our lives to Jesus. Do you who are parents cease seeing your children as good because they hurt you? Because they do wrong? Any sense that we are bad comes not from God. Separated from him because of our self-centeredness, our selfishness, our resistance to his love, our unwillingness to see him as the ultimate reality, choosing other realities as celebrity culture or money or work or self-fulfillment, yes, he came to deliver us from that. But God didn't send Jesus to save us from our inherent badness, but rather from the sin that so infected us all. And to deliver us from the power of that sin, he had to become sin for us. He had to be cursed to take our curse. It's as if in order to take away the power of the coronavirus that no one has a cure for yet, he said, I will become that virus. I will become the ultimate vaccine for the entire world, and while I'm there becoming that vaccine, I will forgive their sins forever. I will take on myself the coronavirus on behalf of the world so that the world itself will be miraculously saved from it. One of the greatest lies of Satan is that you are bad, but you are not. That you are unworthy, but you are not. That you have no dignity, but you, but you are not, but you do. That you can't do anything right, but you can. 
that you are not lovable, but you are. That you are responsible for whatever abuse and pain you experience, but you are not. You see, the death of Christ had nothing to do with making us good or getting rid of our badness. Instead, it had to do with Jesus refusing to socially distance himself, of the Father refusing to socially distance himself from us anymore, despite knowing that in embracing us, he would get our virus. But he did anyway. And in doing so, he became the cure at the same time. He took upon it as a, himself, as it were, our illness so that he could cure us. He became the virus and the cure all in one moment on the cross. So when you and I come to Jesus, it is not to be made good or for our badness to be unmade. It is to be cured, to be made whole, to be healed, to be brought back to the life that God intended for us to live all along. And folks, on this holy week, that is good news. I'd like to talk to the children and youth for a moment before we have communion together this morning. Children from as little as I can remember that I was, and young people as well. I used to struggle and live in a lot of fear when it was time for communion. I remember sitting in the pew in my church, and I would be very nervous and actually shaking and tremoring. Because I was so afraid that in coming to take the bread of Christ, the body of Christ, I was unworthy of it. There was somehow something bad about me that wasn't worthy to take the bread of Christ. That in coming to take the blood of Christ, I was unworthy. And I would pray the whole way up the aisle that Jesus would forgive me of all my sins. And what I was really praying that was that he would forgive me of my badness. I didn't understand that it wasn't my badness that he came to forgive me from. That I wasn't bad. And in fact, he saw me as good. And so this morning, as you and your family take communion together, I want you to remember that he loves you. That he accepts you as you are, that he receives you as you are, that he came and forgave your sins so that you could live a free life and a whole life and a life with God forever. And so today, I come to the table always knowing that I am a loved child of Jesus, that I am valued by Jesus, and knowing that I owe him my life and my healing and my wholeness and my deliverance from death, and I open myself to him with gladness and with joy. Today, I hope you and I both, no matter where we're at and what we're struggling with and what, what fears we have, come to the table with joy. Come to the table with gladness. Come to the table with hope and with expectation that you will come as you are, finding healing and hope in Jesus for these days. Before we take communion together this morning, Kate Ebersole, our minister of worship, will be leading us in several songs, after which we will walk through the litur liturgy that I sent to you online, and if you have access to that in front of you, that would be great. If not, that's okay too. You can just move through it with us together. Let's pray before we sing together. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are the one who has come not to make us good because you loved the world so much and called what you created good. But you came to deliver us from the separation from you that sin had brought into the world that our hearts just so quickly turned from what is good to ourselves and to the world and to other things. But you came and became sin 
and at the same time forgave our sin. You became the wicked to do away with our wickedness. You became death to do away with the sting of death. And you gave us life. And we're just aware this morning in this sacred moment, this holy moment, when we're dispersed and in so many ways a broken people, recognizing our brokenness, that we come to you this morning for wholeness. That we come to you this morning to be remembered. That we remember you so that you can remember us. So that you can put us back together no matter how we're feeling individually or how we're feeling corporately this morning. That we are your children. That we're deeply loved by you. And as we meet together around the table, separated, dispersed, and yet one body in Christ, we celebrate the fact that we can do this this morning because you yourself were broken for us in advance. And you yourself in your brokenness declared that we are whole, that we are yours, that we are good. In Jesus' name, amen.
One of the questions that Heidi and I ask ourselves sometimes is what will be left when this all ends? Will there be a church when this all ends? And I wonder if Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, also wondered what would be at the end of, after his death. Would the church, as he imagined it, 
would the church remain, would the people of God remain, would his disciples remain connected to him and to one another? And maybe it's why when he ascended to heaven, he asked them to hang out together until the Holy Spirit came. But this morning we say resoundingly that there is a church and there will always be a church. We are part of the universal church of God that Christ has put together through his own brokenness. And this morning I'd like to lead you through a liturgy that I put together and adapted from the Book of Common Prayer. If you have it in front of you, I'm going to read through it with you and you can jump in where you are and where it's indicated and I will indicate that as we go along. Together, all of us, we pray, Almighty God, we pray for you to graciously behold we, your people, of Elizabethtown Mennonite Church and all of those who join us this morning, for whom our Lord Jesus Christ was willing to be betrayed and was given into the hands of sinners and to suffer death upon the cross, who now lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Children, if you would say with me, John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Dearest people of God, our Heavenly Father sent his Son Jesus into the world not to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. That all who believe in him might be delivered from the power of their brokenness, and crookedness, and deception, and self-centeredness, from sin and death, and become heirs with him of everlasting life. Therefore, this morning, we're going to spend some time praying together for a list of needs that I have noted be be below, and I'd ask you to invite you and invite you to read that with me. For physicians and nurses and the medical staff feeling the stress and strain of caring for the sick, For those suffering from COVID-19 now and who will in the future, and for their families and friends who care for them, who love them. For those who've had to die and will die alone without family and friends. For those suffering grief from the death of those they love to whom they could not say goodbye. For those who are alone and isolated and experiencing anxiety and depression this morning. For we, the church, who are scattered throughout our community, for those who have lost their jobs and wondering how to pay bills, buy food, pay for medical expenses, for our government leaders at every level this morning who must make difficult decisions in this time, for our children who miss their friends in school, for all of us who live with the knowledge that what we thought was real and solid and so predictable just four weeks ago, but know now we will never return to the way things always were and who live with the uncertainty of what the new normal will be. Gracious God, the comfort of all who sorrow, the strength of all who suffer, let the cry of those in misery and need come to you, that they may find mercy and present within them all their afflictions. And give us, we pray, the strength to serve them for the sake of him who suffered for us, your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. And together we confess our sins before Kate leads us in another hymn. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent. For the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us 
that we may delight in your will, walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Amen. Christ, our Passover, has been sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast this morning, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. The death that he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So also consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Jesus Christ our Lord. Hallelujah. Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since by man came death, by man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Hallelujah. Before we take the bread and cup, or as actually as you do it together as a family or as an individual, I'm drawn to a story that I remember of folks, inmates, prisoners in a concentration camp, who on Good Friday remembered that it was Good Friday in the midst of their circumstances, and remembered the death and resurrection of Jesus. And one of them among them said, why don't we celebrate communion together? And someone said, but we have no elements. And the other said, it doesn't matter. Let's take the cup and let's take the bread, the broken body and the blood of Christ, and let's celebrate together. And so even if you don't have a cup or bread at your home this morning, just do it anyway. Do it remembering that the invisible body and blood of Christ is with you and has forgiven our sins. And so as you take bread and cup together, I want to encourage you to say to one another, the body of Christ broken for you. The blood of Christ poured out for you. Kate is going to lead us in a song as we take communion together. And so just take this time to imagine together the goodness, to reflect upon the goodness of God and the faithfulness of God and his brokenness for our salvation. Amen. i 
singing this song and preparing for this morning, the phrase that's kept sticking out to her was, He will restore. He will restore. He will restore. Because of Jesus, we know that He is restoring. That even though everything seems to be falling down around us, the miracle of God, the miracle of Christ's salvation is that He is restoring us nonetheless. Scotty, this morning back on sound, reminded us too as we were getting started that he who brings you to it will also bring us through it. Amen. This week we have a number of things planned for Holy Week that we want to encourage you to take part in and to stay connected to one another. It's so important that we stay connected to those we love and care about in this time as best we can. Tuesday evening we will have a prayer time again at 7 o'clock on Zoom that you're welcome to participate in. I'll send the Zoom link out this week. Heidi will also announce a couple of times for, as I've said earlier, to meet those of you who like support and care and check in with her during this time and with others who are on the line. At 11 o'clock this morning or as soon as the service is over, we will have the adult Bible study, but it's welcome to children and uh, children are welcome as well. Um, It's, again, living in this land we've never been before, and we'll be particularly looking at Deuteronomy 32 a chapter where God gave his people before they crossed the river a song. And one of the questions we're struggling with and wrestling with in that class is, what is the song that God has put in your heart for this time? It's another reason I was so excited by the song that God put in Kate's heart as she leads us in worship during the season. On Sunday morning at 6.15, we'll stream live from the Elizabethtown Mennonite Church Cemetery. And we'll enact a bit the first resurrection and also have some scripture and some time together so that'll be streamed live on Facebook and perhaps YouTube will let you know how to link to that. We'll follow that with a service at 10 o'clock as well and again with Zoom links to that. If there are ways that you'd like to stay connected that you're not, please be in touch with us. Again, we are one body in Christ who was broken once for all time so that we need not be broken. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, as Kate leads us in this dismissal song, this response song to this morning, we thank you that we are one body in Christ. Whether we belong to this congregation or identify with another congregation or don't identify with any congregation at all, but who've looked to you for our healing and for our life, for our salvation and our hope, that we are one body in Christ this morning, across wherever geographic regions we are. And we pray for this country and we pray for the world, for your life, for your restoration, for your hope, for your salvation, and for your healing. In the strong name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Kate will lead us in this last song and will wrap things up for us this morning. May God bless you and thank you for being with us today.
when I trust you, I don't need to understand. Make me a vessel. Make me an offering. Make me whatever you want me to be. I came here with nothing but all you given me Jesus bring new wine out of me in the crashing in the pressing you are making new wine in the soil Wow. 